Hello and welcome to the Emergence Discipleship Podcast. As a church, it's our hope that the proclamation of God's Word on Sundays would turn into the application of God's Word in our daily lives, leading to the transformation of people in our local communities. To that end, we pray that this podcast would serve to further equip you with more insight, background, and context into the themes and topics we study each week, first as we gather together to worship Jesus, and then as we go to make disciples. Thank you for joining us here today, and let's get started as we dive into this week's discussion. What's up, leaders? Welcome back to our study through the Passion of the King series in our winter 2020 community season. What's up, Doug? How are you doing? Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Good this to week... be seen. <laughs> or heard, I guess, on yes. our podcast. Um, Doug, what are we diving into this week? We're in Matthew 26, verses 20 to 35, right? Yes. Even though Ryan only went up to verse 29, um, it's. Uh, I guess it's kind of... <laughs> You could either do the uh, end of the passage that we're talking about with yeah. your group this week yeah. or save it for next week if yeah. you're really organized. That's all right. Well, we did that a little bit last week, too. We talked about the Passover last yeah. week. So we'll dive into that in, in all of its full glory this week, I think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Doug, let's work through our um, let's work through our guide here. Uh, before we get into anything else, just a reminder, if you're listening about Emergence Connect, all of you guys, if you're leaders, should have been invited by now. So if you haven't received an email, please let us know. We'll make sure that we send you out uh, the email. Definitely check your spam folders, too. Every once in a while, they end up in the junk folder. Uh, but take a look at that. When you jump onto Emergence Connect, definitely invite your folks into your group. But please don't send out any username invitations or anything like that or invite them to an event yet because we're still in the process of onboarding everybody into Emergence Connect. And if you're listening to this and you're not a leader, welcome anyway. Don't worry about Emergence Connect. <laughs> so let's jump into our passage this week. Uh, Doug, we're going to jump into Matthew 26, the first five verses, right? So 20 through 25. And the passage this week is focusing on Jesus's Passover feast with his disciples. Uh, and also, you know, we get to see, you know, the betrayal of one of them, right? Judas, mm-hmm. uh, who Jesus specifically kind of um, calls out in this passage, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, we also see an awesome example of a theme, uh, as you mentioned, that occurs all over in Scripture, which is really the balance between God's sovereignty and kind of human responsibility and how those two things kind of coincide, right? And we see that with Judas in that, you know, God sees this and he's sovereign over that. Um, but at the same time, Judas is responsible for his own actions. So we have a couple of questions here, Doug. The first one, uh, when Jesus warns his disciples that one will betray him, none of them point fingers, but instead ask, is it I, Lord, in turn? And uh, what is the signal to you about your own faithfulness? I love this question. Yeah. Every single one of the disciples asked. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, I kind of made a gaffe last week, I remember, because I, I mentioned it in here, and I was like, I forget which gospel says that. And then I look, <laughs> and it's you like, say yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matthew. Oh, I did. <laughs> um, and, uh, but... Um, yeah, in fact, it's it's interesting that the way that Jesus reveals this information is almost meant to kind of instigate that, right? Because he could have just said, Judas is going to betray me, but he purposely makes it ambiguous and then specifically says it to Judas. Interesting. You know what I mean? Like, why, why go this roundabout way where he first makes everyone wonder? Like, it... It's it's like a moment of causing them all to reflect on their own faithfulness to him. Yeah, that's a it's such that's a great point. You know, when you're sitting like I can only as you're saying this, I'm picturing myself sitting at the table, right? Mm. And yeah. if Jesus were to say one of you will betray me, like the fear that would be in my heart of my own ability to sin would terrify me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I would ask the same question: Is it me? You know, like is it I, Lord? Am I the one that will betray you? Which signals, you know something pretty big about our own faithfulness to Christ, right? We waver. We're still 
um, in the presence of sin, so to speak, right? Our, there's still a sin nature yes. that leads us away from Jesus. And as a result, you know what I mean? It's like, what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus, to trust in him, to walk with him, to allow the Holy Spirit to lead? Yeah. You know? In fact, I think a part of spiritual maturity is realizing that you're a bigger sinner than you thought you were when you mm. first started walking with Christ, which also nicely means that your understanding of the power of the cross is bigger too, mm. you know? But yeah, like co- the, the the peeling back of the onion is a very big effect that uh, walking with Jesus has with us. Mm. Was it C.S. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Spurgeon. Somebody was talking about how... Um, I, I was studying this in college. Like when you first become a Christian, mm-hmm. you, you look at your life and there's like a few sins that you know are obviously against God's will. You know yeah. what I mean? And like once you become a Christian, it's like those things go away pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But it's like the more and more, the, like the closer that I get to Jesus, the more I realize how much of a sinner I am, right? It's almost like yeah. paradoxical. Because like the further away from Jesus, the more I never realized how bad I actually was, and the further I get close, the closer I get to Him, the the worse I it, it almost feels. You yeah. know what I mean? It's it's like uh, stepping further into the light makes you realize how dark you are. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, cool. So question number two: Has there ever been a time where you personally have felt like Judas, and do those times come along more often than you'd like to admit? How do you return from this and continue your walk with Christ? So uh, this is. Pretty big question, kind of right out of the gate. And so, um, leaders, just, you know, as you're listening to this, we pay attention to kind of where we are in the season. Um, as much as we can, we want to make sure that we honor the text for what it is, you know, and these, these are questions that spill right out of the text. But as we kind of go through the community season, we try to arc the questions a little bit so that they get deeper um, and, and uh, more intimate, so to speak, and more personal as we get closer to the spring season, right? And so here we are. This is kind of the climactic point. Easter's right around the corner. Good Friday's right around the corner. We're in the middle of Lent. So now may be the appropriate time to start really asking your group to be a little bit more transparent uh, if they haven't been already. If you're going to do that, I would always recommend doing this first yourself as the leader, right? Model kind of the, tr- the transparency that you're hoping to see from the rest of your group. And this, this question is one of those, you know, has there ever been a time where you personally have felt like Judas, you know, for my group tonight, my group meets tonight, I'm going to be the first one to answer this. And it's like, I often feel like Judas more often than I'd like to admit in the fact that just like I said, you know, it seems like the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize how dark I really am. And by God's grace, you know, there's a pattern in my life of, of sin being defeated. But, you know, in the beginning, it was like the big sins went away you know, drinking and partying and everything else went away pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And now every moment of my life, I'm praying for more patience. I'm paying, I'm praying for more grace in my life, for more understanding for others. You know what I mean? And it seems like my will is always bent toward myself, you know, yeah. and not towards. You Christ realize purposes. that some sins are just more conspicuous, you know, and those can often be uh, like the, they're more obvious. Like you see them more and they're, it's mm-hmm. clearer. And, but what you don't realize, I don't know if I've, I think I've maybe sh- shared my analogy of an iceberg, like if you've uh. ever seen a picture of an iceberg above and below water, like the iceberg below water is huge, way bigger than yeah. this huge mountain that's above the water. Yeah. And that's kind of how it is with, with sin is that like, you know, you have what shows and what's very obvious, but what generates those that is sometimes much bigger and much deeper mm. than, than that. So. Mm. 
Um, awesome. So how do you return from this and, and continue your walk with Christ? And so the second part of the question probably, it, it almost seems the way we're asking this, Doug, is it's insinuating a pretty serious sin here. But realistically, wherever you're at and, and however you're walking with Jesus, you know, if, if you've fallen into a pattern of sin, how do you come back to walk with Christ, right? I think the only answer to this really is repentance, you know? Yeah, it's it's repentance, but uh, uh, repentance and uh I, I think one of the traps that I will tend to fall into is being like, well, I screwed up. Now the whole day is a wash. I might as well mm. kind of like same with like screwing up on your diet or something. Sure. You know, like if I like. Well, I wasn't supposed to eat that, <laughs> so I might as well just so order pizza. Might, might as well have, yeah, <laughs> like, like make it count or something, you know, like. And just this idea that like you're you're only you were only accepted in the first place because of Jesus's right. merits, right. Uh, not your own. And time doesn't change that mm. the amount of time between you and your failing. Mm. And so the the best thing to do really is just to immediately get back up. And uh, you know, I I was it's an interesting question to think of like how healthy it is to de- to dwell on past failures. That's a great yeah. um, and. Because it, it can definitely become unhealthy navel-gazing, mm. but I do ha- think it's helpful insofar as it helps you in the future, mm. insofar as like knowing yourself and where your weaknesses are and everything um, hel- helps you with uh, battling your those weaknesses in, in the future. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's amazing that when Peter eventually does get reinstated by Jesus, like we see this especially in the Gospel of John, it's almost like Jesus is, is kind of like, all right, let's forget about what happened. Mm. And uh, do you love me? Yes. You know, mm. feed my sheep. He's like, like, we know what you did. Mm. Uh, and uh, I've washed you. And so move forward. Get mm. up, move forward. Mm. I love that. Just the, the piece that, you know, I think the, probably the best analogy is the one that you used with the food thing, right? So mm-hmm. if I, you know, if I forgot this morning that I wasn't going to be eating sugar and mm-hmm. there was some sugar in my coffee, I was like, yeah. well, might as well order a box of donuts and, yeah. you know, forget it. You know, that's not the case. You know what I mean? And, you know, the reality of that too, especially with the Christian walk is like, we are not removed from the presence of sin yet. Yeah. You know, one day we will be. Yeah. But so far as it is among, I mean, you'll walk around the corner and find something that is awful, you know, just that's the reality of kind of the culture of our life. And so is that our excuse to just be like, well, oh, well, you know what I mean? I guess I, I have to live a life of sin or I have to live in constant presence of sin in my life. No, not at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, cool. Let's, let's press on. Question number three. How should our understanding of this passage impact the way we see our own sin in relations to God's plan for the world? So uh, this is talking a little bit about the idea that God is still sovereign, and yet Judas is responsible for his actions as well. Mm-hmm. How would you answer this, Doug? Well, um, in the leader's commentary, there's um, I, I go to what I think is a very helpful verse with this, um, where this is Acts 2.23 in, in Peter's passage, and this is kind of a classic text for this, where it's like, um, you know, you have both human responsibility and divine sovereignty both at play. He refers to this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's, so there, there's you've a got typo like, in here. Oh, is there? Yeah. Uh, it's missing whom, but small, oh, okay. small deal. No, no worries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, actually, I read it with the whom included to make it work in the sentence that I'm saying. Gotcha. But the text itself doesn't. That helped me because yeah. first reading this, I, I was confused yeah, yeah. for a second. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whom you crucified and killed by yeah, the hands yeah. of lawless men. Um, so, uh, yeah, the... Uh, the, the idea there is that, you know, all these parties are implicated in the death of Christ, including God, mm. right? That, and Jesus all around this, this the, like uh, at least three times or so in this chapter, is talking about how this is how to fulfill the scriptures. You know, how else would the scriptures be fulfilled and things like that? So there's definitely this idea that like these steps that are happening, number one, as, as we'll see in a, a question or two later, uh, he's, it's not like he's out of – he's lost control here, mm. right? Like that these things are just happening to him now and, and, and woe is him. But, uh, but also the, the idea that this is something that is happening exactly according to God's plan, ex- exactly uh, under the rule of his sovereignty. And yet these people who are making these decisions and are doing these evil things – um, are responsible for their decisions, and the mm. Bible treats those things as compatible with one another, mm. as as not overriding one another. Um, we get in a little trouble when we try to figure out exactly what that looks like, exactly where God's sovereignty, I don't want to say ends, because right, technically it right. doesn't end, right. but... Um, you know where our responsibility kicks in. What exactly God did. What exactly we did. And there's be- there's different ways of parsing this. Yeah. But um, but the uh, at the, the fa- end of the day, the, the passage calls us to be like we to are say responsible. both things to say both things. Yeah. yeah. It's it's with it's like that way with um, with a bunch of biblical doctrines where it's like our, our task is to say what the scriptures say, and if there are tensions there, then we need to we need to leave them mm-hmm. there. But um, but I suspect that it, this is not a huge point of, of contention. Mm. Uh, we understand that this is both something that God is willing to happen, uh, and yet he's doing it at the hands of evil men. You see this, too, in, uh, like, the prophets who talk about, who talk about um, the, you know, Isaiah calls, calls Babylon the, the axe in his hand, hmm. uh, you know, like the, the, the sword in his the hand against, against the people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even though they are wicked and they will be judged for the way in which they've done it. But in, in coming to war against, against Jerusalem, they are executing the judgment of God against his sinful people. Mm. So I think Cal- Calvin says it's something along the lines of saying that like God knows how to use the actions of sinful people to accomplish his purposes. Mm. And um, yeah. Side, yeah. No. All right. So question number four, consider that Judas was most likely present for the drinking of the bread and wine. What implications does this have for the way we understand grace? And what about the way that we view the Lord's Supper? So before we, before I actually ask you the question, Doug, uh, you left a, a comment in the, in the commentary as well. Just talking a little bit, like we can probably assume that Judas was here for this, but the text isn't completely explicit yeah it's right? not completely clear yeah so yeah we can't necessarily say he was absolutely there we can't necessarily say he absolutely was <laughs> matthew certainly gives the impression that he is there right exactly yeah. so assuming that he is there what does this you know what implications does this have for the way that we understand grace yeah so what we're not trying we're not trying to instigate a discussion about oh was judas saved or something right you yeah, know yeah. uh um probably not uh, just based on you know what 
he he goes and does and, right. and the way he's he's reflected upon back in, in scripture. The fruit of but, his actions may suggest that his <laughs> hope was not in Jesus. Yes. Mm. But I think the, the idea is that um, even someone whom Jesus knows is going to betray him mm. is still welcome and still extended the invitation and has extended God's grace mm. and is actually welcome at the communion table. Like there's not this obsession about like, oh, like making sure that everyone is, you know, totally in a state of perfect repentance and everything, you know. Here's Judas plotting against him in his mind mm. and and Jesus welcomes and serves him. And so I think it's it's just this idea of like how 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 the table really is open to everyone, the mm. table of God's grace. This is interesting cuz just from the, you know, from a church standpoint too, when we when we take communion, there's two parties within our own church. Um, that are always always asking the same question to us about the frequency at which we take communion. There's one party always saying that we should take communion every single week, always, um, and it should only be for Christians and everybody else, you know, apart from that. And then there's another party that says, well, we should only take communion every once in a while because we're not sure, you know, who's there and, and everything else. Basically, the premise being that, you know, whether or not we take communion more often or less often, should that only be for members? Should that be for everyone? Should that should we welcome everybody to the table and so on and so forth, right? And it's an interesting kind of argument, I, I would mm-hmm. say, because I, I get the premise, right? That, that communion is for Christians or for people that would accept Jesus as Lord and come to that communion table. And this question kind of brings all of that up yeah. because now it's just like, well, here's Judas yeah. sitting at the table plotting against Jesus. So who do we welcome when, to the table? When we're and talking, how do we do that? when we're talking church polity stuff, mm. uh, you know how this spills over into there. Like what? Um, it's it's it's. I can see the points on both sides. You know, in terms of like how strict are we about who we serve and don't serve communion to? Mm-hmm. Um, it's n- it's not as clear and fast as um, as baptism. I will say right because mm. baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and so. Only people who are actually in the new covenant should be baptized. Mm. Um, that that spills over into whether we baptize children or not, and things like that. Sure. Communion, I think it's a I think it's a harder thing, right? Like on the one hand, uh, certainly there are some people who shouldn't take communion. Mm. Um, and we see this in First Corinthians eleven, where Paul talks about doing so in an unworthy manner. And there he particularly has in mind those who are exacerbating division in the church, hmm. uh, right? The, the context is the poor are being disregarded in the, the meal, the, which probably isn't communion. It's a, I mean, communion is taking place there, but the meal he's referring to there is probably they get together and they eat first hmm. as part of their, their meeting. Uh, they call them love feasts, uh, agape feasts. Huh. Um, okay. And... Um, uh, but and so certainly it is possible like somebody uh, certain people in certain states of sin and high-handed rebellion against God um, should not be given communion um, or or should not themselves take, take it. It's probably right? not. Yeah, you know, the question is open: Is it the church's responsibility to police that or not? Sure. Uh, but you know, I will say that um, an, another another. The the Bible is not particularly clear about who gets served communion and who doesn't, and 
we uh, beyond what I just mentioned in First Corinthians 11. And so we should probably not be that particular about it. Hmm. Now, one aspect of it that is sometimes overlooked is the way that Paul concludes his presentation of the words, right? Hmm. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hmm. And so it's interesting. Uh, Luther actually regarded uh, the Lord's Supper as a way of preaching the gospel, a way of proclaiming the gospel, hmm. it's it's there's a community there's a communicative aspect of communion. There's a way in which we um, in which we um, share Christ. Sure. Uh, so when we take communion, yeah. you know, we explain that you know um, Jesus sat down and had. And had, and did this with his disciples and said, "Do this in remembrance of me." Right. Yeah. The the bread is the body of Christ that was shed. The blood uh, is the uh, the wine is the blood of Christ. Yeah. Right. And so every time we take communion, we we are kind of declaring these things. Yeah. Which reminds me of the Passover feast here a little bit because when they sit down for Passover, they're talking through the Exodus story. Like, yes. Here's why we do this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we do that with communion these days. But there uh, in the Exodus, it's a little bit more explicit that like. Even foreigners are allowed to partake of it, you know, like so people really? who are not, yeah. So, Interesting. So everyone in the covenant is, is, uh, yeah. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, we should press on here, Doug. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So the second section, uh, this is my body is what we've labeled it. We're going to jump into the second section here, verses 26 to 29. Now in the sermon this week, Ryan was explaining how the Passover meal was kind of eaten, including the recounting of the story. Like we just said, uh, God redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt. He then went on to explain how shocking this meal actually would have been for the disciples when Jesus gave them the imagery of the bread as his body and wine as his blood. And what's unique is that this really is a profound found truth, right? In that it shows how our life really comes from Jesus's death. So first question here, uh, number six, why do you think Jesus chose this occasion in particular to explain the significance of his death to his disciples? Hmm. This seems a little obvious to me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 A little, little bit obvious, but uh, the idea is, I I think it's kind of too, I think you want to think about the way in which the old Testament packages the events surrounding the Exodus, like stuff in the book of Exodus, right? So the the coming out of Egypt uh, is the the passing them over, um, you know. So deliverance from sin and death. There you have you have deliverance from slavery, mm. uh, and then you also have it associated with the formation of the the covenant. Mm. So the people are taken out of Egypt and the covenant. So this this meal that is meant to commemorate that entire Exodus event. Now Jesus is endowing it with new significance that transcends all that. Mm. So this idea of fulfillment of the scriptures is happening where like they have kind of version 1.0 in the New Testament, but this is 2.0, which is... You mean in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, yeah. yeah. You know what's really cool? It's like, for me at least, the way that I've always kind of thought of this moment, this Passover meal, is like the shift from the Old, te- the old Covenant to the New yes. Covenant. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not quite. That's the cross. But like... Yeah. This is Jesus explaining, you yeah. know what I mean, like the change, the shift, yeah, which I think is really, really cool. Yeah, it's 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 the it's him explaining that, and there's interesting ways. Uh, there's interesting places of correspondence. So, for example, when the Sinai Covenant is being ratified mm. in Exodus 24, I think it's verse eight. Uh, Moses takes part of the blood and sprinkles it on the people, and he says, "This is the blood of the covenant." Hmm. And here Jesus says the same thing. He says, "This, the, this cup is the blood of the cup of the covenant." Cool. Or is the covenant in my blood? It's worth mentioning yeah. too, Doug. Uh, you and I are planning to do a little bit of a deeper dive this week. As yeah, well, we'll talk so. more about 
uh, Covenant. Yeah, we'll and, jump into the Covenants. Yeah. We're going to jump into some differences uh, some as far Catholic as communion. Stuff, yeah, 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 of kind of uh, the idea of transubstantiation. Yes, we're going to jump into some Catholic stuff. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, all right, so in verse 28, Jesus calls the cup his blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's take a moment, read through this promise of the new covenant the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34. Do you have that in front of you, Doug? Uh, I do now. Sweet. Look at you with the old school Bible. That's right. I convicted you with the computer, didn't That's I? That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> iPad sitting on the shelf. Um, yeah, okay. So this is, yeah, so this is, by the way, this is a passage that every Christian should have in their back pocket. You should mm. know where it is, what's in it. Okay. Maybe have it memorized too. Oops. Okay. Boom. So, so that's that's new homework for everybody listening to this. This is a passage so, of memorized. Yes, it's a very important passage. Jeremiah 31. Thir- 31, 31, 31 34. through 34. Yeah. Okay. So behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Hmm. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Love that passage. So a couple things here. Can I tell um, you something real quick? Yeah, yeah. I call this the squishy passage. Uh-huh. Do you know why? Why is that? Have you ever seen Finding Nemo? I have. So at one point in Finding Nemo, uh-huh. Dory, the fish, okay. discovers a tiny little jellyfish and she go and she goes, I'll call him Squishy and he shall be my and he shall be my squishy. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? Okay, and every you, every the second I heard her say that, I was like, <laughs> Is that is that from the Bible? <laughs> like, Perhaps. He shall be yeah, my Go ahead, that. sorry. So there might be a lawsuit there or something. Um, <laughs> Jesus so, is going to sue. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's a couple big things here that's that that's that's important. I mean, there is continuity. It's not a totally discontinuous continuous thing. Mm. In fact, you notice the, the emphasis on law here. This idea that the law is going to be on our hearts and it's going to mm. be uh, because of the work of the Spirit that that's the case. And um, uh, but. But I think a very very significant aspect, one that Ryan, I think, explained very well in the sermon, is in verse 34 where it says that no longer will, will, each, will each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me. So if you think mm. of the comparison with the old covenant, right, in the old covenant, all like being a part of the covenant people of God did not necessarily mean that you knew the Lord. You know, you could have been a circumcised Israelite and a rank unbeliever. You know, mm. you could have been an, an atheist for, sure. for all we know, right? Like, there's no God or something, you know, or, or, or worshiper of some foreign deity. And, and oftentimes, the Israelites devolved into that, mm. right? But um, Nominal kind of Not very belief. nominal, yeah. yeah. But, the, but a, a distinct characteristic of the new covenant is that everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. Mm. So you know it's, crazy? Different, it's different in, in structure. So I went on a church planning trip a couple uh-huh. of years ago, probably five or six years ago now. Mm-hmm. We uh, went out to Greece and yeah. uh, it was great trip. I ended up going with one of our elders, yeah. um, Christos. He who, gave you the special tour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a story about that. Let me tell you. I've heard it. Oh my gosh, Christos <laughs> scared the living crap out of me because he was trying to show me something that was like, like a um, 
what's it called? Uh, a speakeasy, right? Mm-hmm. That was just in the heart of Athens. Yeah. But in order to kind of get there, we had to walk down the craziest alleyway I've ever seen in my life. And I didn't really know Christos at this point. And if you don't know Christos, he's like, he's awesome. He's just like a big teddy bear, but he's huge. Probably the biggest Greek man I've ever met. He's jacked. And so we're walking down this dark alleyway together. I'm like, where are we going? (laughs) He's going to kill me. But that's another story for another time. He also warned me about the oranges. Uh, Greece has like these orange trees that grow on Uh the sidewalks. And they look just like orange trees. They smell like orange trees. But if you actually eat the fruit, it doesn't taste like oranges at all. I actually used that as a sermon illustration a couple years back. Anyway, so we went out to Greece on a church planning trip, uh-huh. and one of the things I discovered about Greece, we, I was in the taxi, and I was talking to this guy, uh, the Greek taxi driver, and he was saying, of course, of course I'm Christian. He's Greek Orthodox. Oh, yes. He's like, of course yeah, I yeah. am. I'm like, oh, you believe in God? He's like, no. And we, wait, what? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So to be Orthodox in Greece is essentially their... If you're Greek, you're Orthodox. Yes. That's, it's basically yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a nominal it's, thing. That's a similar thing. To but the, they may be atheists. They may yeah. be agnostic. They might believe in Jesus. It's anywhere in between. And so yep. um, all that to come back to the point at hand is that in this time, you know, in the Old Covenant, it was much the same. You could be an Israelite. Mm. And like you said, you could have been circumcised and sitting amidst, you know, God's people, but not actually believe in, in God. Yeah. And the, the other big thing to note about the New Covenant here, like the other big, big idea is notice how it's all capped off with a four clause, right? The four. Um, Now, there's a bunch of those throughout here, but the last one kind of has this effect of wrapping everything up. So you could say, phrase it like, well, why will all this be possible? Why will all of it be true? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So it's based, the reason these things will be true is because God will accomplish forgiveness. Mm. Again, another connection with what Jesus is saying here, right? Because he says, this is the blood, this is the new covenant in my blood, and uh, it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Almost as if to say, and you remember that forgiveness of sins that we're, that we were talking about in the old test in the yeah. old covenant with Jeremiah. That here's here's how that's going to happen with my blood. Not to say that there wasn't such thing as forgiveness of sins under the old covenant, mm. but here we're talking about something much more complete, much more ultimate and final. Awesome. So that kind of answered question number seven, right? You know, what are some of the characteristics of the new covenant in Christ? Question number eight asks, in what way does this surpass the covenant God made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt? You kind of spoke to that to a certain point Mm -hmm. too. Um, Question number nine, how does the truth that our life comes from Jesus's death play itself out in our daily lives? Great question. Very applicable question to everyday life. And what does it mean to be nourished by the body and blood of Christ? So obviously, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into this, right? The reality that my life comes from Jesus's death means that I'm not dependent on my own actions. <laughs> uh, I can rely on God. Uh, I can rely on his Holy Spirit. I always think of Galatians 2.20, right? Uh, where Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? Yeah. Um, and this life that I now live, right? I live in, you know, basically dependence on the Holy Spirit of Christ who lives within me. Uh, I've been crucified with Christ, right? Yeah. Um, That Paul's talking in, I think it's Galatians 2.20. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always think of that. You know what I mean? That's the reality of my life now because like (laughs) Jesus' death has brought me life and I don't have to live as if I'm trying to work to earn my way into the kingdom somehow, but Jesus can can live through me. And the fruit of that is actually the very thing that that is God's will. You know what I mean? Yeah. I look at Jesus and I see how he loved me. And as a result, I want to love others the same way, you know? Yep. 
What else? Anything else you'd add into that, Doug? Um, I mean, there's plenty of passages that speak in that that kind of way. Uh, beginning of Romans 6 comes to mind as well. Mm. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, 17. Uh, lots, of, lots of very important passages here. But yeah, I mean, essentially... Um, you know that that uh, we are not we have no life in God unless we have Christ. Yeah. That's. Last question in this section, number ten. What does the imagery here in the Lord's Supper teach us about the unity in the body of Christ? In what way or ways does the modern church life honor these truths, and where might we be falling short? You want to take a stab at that one, Doug? Uh, sure. Yeah. So the um, everybody is just as welcome at the table um, here. Uh, everyone. Uh, is invited to partake of Christ in the same way. That's a beautiful picture that we do when we do communion, I think, yeah. that we see where um, what, wherever you are in terms of, like, the church structure, wherever you are in terms of uh, your own personal life, your personal walk, um, your everybody is given the same amount. Everybody is given. Everybody takes it together. Mm. Um, we're reminded that we all have one Lord who, who gives us these yeah. things. And no difference in class system, no difference in race. We right. all come together. It's it's yeah, yeah, it's a very leveling thing and a, and a beautiful truth there. We talked about the second part a little already. Mm-hmm. In what way does the modern church life honor these truths and where might we be falling short? You know, you and I talked a little bit about just specifically here at Emergence, you know, there is always a call to have communion more often, to have it less often, to make it more restrictive, to make it less restrictive and more inviting. You know, all of those things hold true at the end of the day. You know, communion, like you said, it's communicative mm-hmm. in, in the fact that we're trying to communicate that the hope that we have in Jesus, that our sins have been paid for by Christ's shed body and blood, we can all come to the table. We can all have that hope in Jesus. Yes. Um, cool. So the last section here, the flock will be scattered. Now, we're going to lean a little bit into, <laughs> into next week's message. I'm, I'm yeah. laughing. I don't know if you guys could hear that on the podcast. We have pipes in uh, Suite 300 yes. in our office that uh, they whistle when somebody's washing their hands with exceptionally hot water. So it's hopefully the, that's not it's too It's a soundtrack to my life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. This last section here, Doug, yeah. uh, we're talking a little bit about the end of uh, this passage, which I think Ryan's going to cover a little bit more in the upcoming yes. sermon. So, mm-hmm. But we can jump in here a little Spoiler bit early. alert. Yeah. So um, in our passage this week, we see Jesus in full control of the events that are about to take place, even though it seems like chaos is about to break loose. So question number 11, in your opinion, why do you think that we, like Jesus' disciples in this passage, are so prone to fear even even when we may understand Jesus' sovereignty? Hmm. Very applicable question, I think. I, I honestly leave that up to the discussion for the groups. Yeah. Like I think that's a I think it's a great question to ask. I'd love to hear how our groups kind of answer this one. And then number twelve, uh, Peter's attempt at boldness eventually leads to an, an especially painful fall on his part. Uh, while the others will be, sca- we're talking a little bit about the the idea that Peter actually says to Jesus, "I will never leave you or forsake you." Yeah. Right. And Jesus says, "Peter, you'll deny me three times." Mm-hmm. Um, is the, that's not in this passage, though, is it? Uh, no, it is. He, he, he does. Yeah, he it is. That's yeah, the end of this is where he oh, no his, uh, and and all the other disciples say the same thing. Yeah, and uh, hmm. uh, yeah. Um, so okay, so we are kind of looking ahead here a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but anyway, to finish the question, um, Peter will actually deny Christ. Can you relate to Peter in both his uh, protestations? Of his love, nice word there, Doug. Thank you. Very Protestations much. of his love for Christ yeah. and a shameful denial of his Lord. How does Peter's cautionary example inform the way we worship Jesus? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we we want to love Jesus with a lot of zeal, and and I think pride's a dangerous thing in that. You know what I mean? We should all 
Um, what, how does Paul say it? We should all be careful lest we stumble. Yeah, lest he who, uh, lest he who thinks he stand take heed. He who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall or right. something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. That's how Paul phrases it, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. What passage is that? Do you know? Uh, I want to say 1 Corinthians 10. Wow. Now you got me looking for it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I love that passage, though. Like, we should be careful, you okay. know what I mean? Because the very moment, like, if I wake up this morning and say, I'm going to love Jesus with my whole heart, you know what yes. I mean? Yes. Are you right? 1 Corinthians 10? 10, 12, yes. Look at you, Doug. There well you done, man. See that? Um, awesome, but you know we should be careful in how in and how we walk, assuming that um, that the gospel isn't every day and every moment. You know what I mean? We need Jesus in every aspect of our lives. There's there's really nothing we bring to the table yeah. except our own brokenness. You in know? fact, like you eventually you you eventually run into folks sometimes who do often like protest their own faithfulness and will tell you like mm. how much they love the Lord and everything and. If you've been around long enough, that kind of, that actually kind of becomes a red light. Yeah. You know, um, like of a lack of maturity. Of, yeah, that it, it could definitely be that. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, maybe we have a maybe we're we're more prone to talking modestly. You know, maybe that's a bit of a cultural thing or something. But some, but a lot of times, you know, I I, I have to be a little bit. You know, I think we need to be a little bit careful about. In fact, there there's even some Christian songs that that will often like. You know, um, uh, where we we, we sing of our, we sing of our yeah. own faithfulness to yeah. the Lord, and it's just you know it's not, but it's not about. I mean, it is about our faithfulness. Like that's what the walk of faith is. Yeah. You know, but it's I, about Jesus' I, name, I'm, not, I'm not ours. It's a yeah, and it's about it. Uh, where it's it's. It, I, I'm not the dependable one in this relationship, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, and, you know, I think that's summed up in the last prayer here, too. So we've got three suggestions for you guys as you pray this week. First, pray that, you know, the Lord would really impress on your heart kind of the privilege that we have to, to be able to partake in the covenant, especially together uh, in unity, which is really cool. Number two, pray for our church to reflect on the unity that we find at the table. And then last one, uh, and I love this, pray for a healthy way to balance your own love for Jesus with the realization that you will fail him inevitably. And it's, it, which calls us back to the communion table. And that is our hope. And so um, that's just a quick overview for some of the questions that fall out of the text this week. Doug, you and I are going to do a deep dive here probably tomorrow or Wednesday. And we'll have that available to you uh, hopefully by the end of, uh, of this week. That's right. And until then, uh, take care. Have a great discussion this week. And thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.